When the teaching team was talking about this message and this text several weeks ago when we started dealing with it, we observed that if we asked random church members, just by way of survey, to name the defining characteristic of a true follower of Jesus, that we might have to ask for a long time before someone said love. Love is the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. And yet, any clear-eyed reading of the New Testament can lead to no other conclusion but this. Love, specifically love shown to others, is the mark, the mark of being a genuine follower of Jesus in Scripture. Allow me to just skip a rock across the top of Scripture uh, to prove that case. You have heard it was said, you shall love your enemy and or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 44. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 29 through 31. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love... For one another, John 13, 34 and 35. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. And that just scratches the surface. The evidence is unassailable. The defining characteristic as, as shared and taught by Scripture of a genuine follower of Jesus is the love that they have for others, both inside and outside the church. So it shouldn't surprise us that this was both the private and the public testimony of the early church. The second century Christian author Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how they love one another. Second century Christian apologist and philosopher Justin Martyr described the early Christians in this way. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. 
Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people, and we pray for our enemies. Second century theologian and philosopher Clement of Alexandria described this person who had just recently come to Jesus in this way. He said he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear the poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. Love in Scripture and in early church history was the defining characteristic of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. But that defining characteristic very quickly, very quickly, began to take a back seat. An assault on truth began almost immediately, and the New Testament book of Jude addresses that, and there's a necessary call in the book of Jude to earnestly contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But that command twisted in the mind of many Christians and led them to believe that they could only stand for truth if they were ferociously, even brutally, punishing error. See the Spanish Inquisition. See the Reformation. See also Twitter and Facebook. The constant pull towards moral decay that began almost immediately. And Paul's declaration that God has not called us to impurity but in holiness twisted in the mind of many Christians and led them not to glorify God with their bodies but instead ferociously punish sinners. See the Novationism of the third century, which taught that God can forgive, but the church doesn't have to. See the Salem witch trials. See also Twitter and Facebook. And the constant opposition of secular culture that began almost immediately. And John's prophetic vision of the slaughter of Christ's enemies at his return has caused many Christians to believe that we should be known primarily by how ferociously and brutally we war with culture. See the 4th fourth, fourth century Roman culture wars that attempted to outlaw paganism. See the moral majority. See also Twitter and Facebook. My point with all of this is not to say that guarding truth and upholding morality and resisting cultural rot aren't important. I'm just saying that we aren't meant to choose one over the other. Choose one while leaving the other undone. Guarding truth, upholding morality, resisting, resisting cultural rot are important, provided that the foundation for those activities is the love of Jesus, which we are supposed to embody on planet earth and the church throughout its history has only infrequently been defined known in broader culture by its love which brings us to our passage for today what paul has done in these verses that i read to start the message is build what's known in biblical studies as a paranesis now a paranesis is basically an ethical riff. It's a stream of consciousness 
flow of ideas of what it means to live out whatever it is that's being celebrated. And what Paul is doing in this part of Romans is saying this is what naturally flows from an experience of the gospel. And he starts by saying what naturally flows from the experience of the gospel is genuine love. What does genuine love look like? Well, it looks like all of the things that I just read. And, and because it's stream of consciousness, it's almost impossible to outline. There really are no verses that build on top of the other. They're, in that sense, they're, they're very much like the Proverbs in the Old Testament. But this list, constructed by Paul, operates under the common theme of what to expect in the life of someone who knows Jesus if what one should expect from the life of someone who knows Jesus is genuine love. Can't be logically outlined like most of Paul's writings, and yet there are three broad themes that he very clearly is pressing into with this list that he built that helps us know what it is that God is attempting to do in our lives in building love and also helps us assess if what we say is our love and therefore our faith is genuine. So these are very important verses. And here's the first theme that, that Paul brings out. Genuine love promotes holiness. Genuine love promotes holiness. Now, here's the thing. This is, this is why Paul is a funky dude sometimes. In defining what genuine love is, he starts with saying, here's what it hates. Here's, here's what it hates. Look again at the last part of verse 9. Verse 9 says, abhor, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What Paul says here is radical. He's saying, contra our world, the object of love is not being liked and accepted. The object of love is what is good. So genuine love isn't measured by accepting what is evil, but is instead measured by loving what is good. So love doesn't mean that we are free to be lulled into a tolerance of that which is objectively evil in the eyes of God. A genuine follower of Jesus should never view anything that is contrary to the will of God with anything less than absolute horror. With that in mind, look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now Paul is somewhat expanding on the idea of verse 9 by saying that our commitment to serve the Lord is an all-encompassing experience. It's not just reserved for my weekends or when I'm feeling extra churchy. It is something that is all of life, that we should never become lethargic in our abhorring what is evil and in our loving what is good. And then he caps off the entire passage by saying this in verse 29, 21, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So it's, it's easy to see here that Paul views genuine love for Jesus as being something more than a feeling. Now, to be sure, we are meant to feel, to feel our love for Jesus. Jesus is a personal God with whom we have a personal relationship, and so we are meant to feel at the level of our feelings uh, our love for Jesus. But a professed love for Jesus that doesn't manifest itself in our lives as an ongoing commitment to holiness calls into question that professed 
love. Further, a professed love for Jesus that doesn't manifest itself in calling people out of their sin by naming their life as sin calls into question professed love because we aren't loving if we ignore sin in the life of someone that we claim to love. Now, it's been my experience that we are susceptible either to saying we love Jesus but not pursuing holiness on the personal level or to saying that we love Jesus but not challenging others to holiness. And it would probably be good for us to know which of those two that we are susceptible to because it will lead to a train wreck if you're not aware of it. For instance, now I recently heard a preacher say in a sermon, not a preacher at Blue Valley, I think it's important for you to know that. <laughs> I recently heard a preacher say in a sermon, I'm so saved it's pitiful. That's the exact quote. Less than a month later, immorality was covered in his life that calls into question his genuine love for Jesus. On the other hand, my bag of tricks, my natural tendency, would be to not call sin sin in a person's life and to use love as my justification for giving someone the benefit of the doubt or as an excuse for why I don't want to make someone uncomfortable or cause conflict. In fact, there's an entire people group represented here today that wrestles more keenly with that than any other group. Let me speak directly to our teenagers and to our young adults who are here for a, a bit this morning. You face pressure, real pressure, that the rest of us can't even begin to imagine. Your peers, almost to a person, would believe you to be an unloving bigot if you voiced a belief that non-binary sexuality is a corruption of God's will for human sexuality and is, in fact, a sin. Or they would believe you to be anti-woman if you voiced belief that abortion is the actual taking of human life. In fact, that pressure might be so enormous that you are starting to drift in your belief that God created two sexes meant to express themselves sexually in a committed marriage relationship. Or you have started to drift in your belief that being anti-abortion is indeed being anti-woman. And your justification for doing this, this is what culture is telling you, is that holding these beliefs about sexual sin or abortion is unloving. And the loving thing to do is to change your mind. But Paul says... That compromising truth in these areas is the unloving thing to do. Because genuine love promotes holiness in our lives and it promotes holiness in the lives of others. Like I said, a good chunk of us have no idea what the young adults and teenagers face. And my prayer is that you'll be able to hold on to what true, genuine biblical love is and that the rest of us will do as, that as well and pray specifically for them. All right, now let's just move on to everybody so that I can tick everybody off, all right? <laughs> Genuine love, Paul says, promotes selflessness. Radical selflessness. And I want to 
make sure you understand the radical nature of the self, selflessness that is demanded. I want you to look first at verse 10. Love one another. Underline one another if you're comfortable with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Underline one another if you're comfortable in showing honor. Now jump to verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Underline that if you're comfortable. And seek to show hospitality. Finally, look at verse 16. Live in harmony with, underline, one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, why did I have you underline those words? I had you do that because those words flag for us that Paul, in those verses that I just read, is describing the attitude that a Jesus follower should have with every other Jesus follower. Genuine love cultivates an attitude that isn't focused on my needs, but is instead laser-focused on meeting the needs of others and building up those around me and my church family in Christ. In verse 10, Paul says genuine love prompts Jesus' followers to try to outdo, to outcompete one another in showing honor. Verse 13 says that genuine love uh, promotes a, a personal generosity towards Christian brothers and sisters in need and, and toward really the expansion of the gospel. That's what is meant in showing hospitality. First century missionaries were completely dependent on other Jesus followers to provide them with food and shelter as they went on their missionary journeys. And in verse 16, Paul says that genuine love promotes harmony in the church and treats everyone equitably. So here's the radical concept. We talked on it a bit last week. We come around to it this week. Church isn't about you. It is not about your needs. Church for all of us becomes a platform for Jesus followers to put themselves second to everybody else's first. And while that is much easier to say than do, being called to that kind of selflessness within the relationship matrix of the church probably is not all that surprising. You expect preachers to read from the Bible about Christians being loving toward one another. But in these verses, Paul also says, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 14 is pretty clearly not about selflessness towards others in the church. It's, it's, about, it's about selflessness towards those who persecute us. It is calling us to selflessness towards our enemies. And while verse 15 could be about fully entering into the rejoicing and the weeping of only followers of Jesus, the lack of a qualifier seems to indicate that he is talking about entering into the joys and the sorrows fully of all people. So clearly, these verses are telling us that in every human interaction both in the church and outside of the church, genuine love for Jesus in the life of a genuine Jesus follower will manifest itself in the life of the other person so deeply and so richly that it will be as if that person had an encounter with Jesus in the flesh. We are to be so brimming with the love of Jesus that we are essentially the incarnated Christ when we interact 
with other people. It's radical, this selflessness that we are being called to here. And so, by way of example, let me tell you how I wrestled with the radical nature of this in a decision that I made in my life several years ago. The example may prove controversial, and I know that serves as a surprise to no one, but it does, I think, show how radically we are to consider this concept. I have a lot of friends, and frankly, I pastor a lot of people who have concealed carry permits. Now, most of you know that I'm a gun owner. By most standards, I have lots of guns. Not by FBI standards. I think it's important that I make that clear since I'm live streaming to the world right now. But by Johnson County standards, I have a lot of guns. Primarily, shotguns and rifles for hunting. But also, and this probably doesn't make a lot of sense to people who grew up in town, I, I have a couple of handguns that have sentimental value to me. I have a, a handgun that was my grandfather's, first gun I ever shot. And I have a, a handgun given to me by my father-in-law who died 20 years ago tomorrow. So, I, I clearly don't have any issue with responsible firearm ownership, but I don't have a concealed carry permit. I came close about 12 years or so ago, but decided not to. Why? Not because I'm a pacifist. I believe that sometimes to stop injustice, you might have to take what would otherwise be an immoral action. So if I saw someone being harmed or endangered, the moral thing for me to do, the just thing for me to do, the loving thing for me to do would be to do everything possible to stop that unjust act up to and including taking the life of the perpetrator. I have no problem with police carrying firearms, and while I grieve the loss of life, I am not against war for just causes. I subscribe to the theological framework that's been around for centuries called the just war theory. I'm not a pacifist. But I don't have a concealed carry permit because I don't trust myself to value the life of someone attacking me more than I value my own. And I think that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling me to do exactly that. If I could trust myself to carry a weapon only in order to stop evil being done against someone else, I might carry. But I cannot reconcile blessing those who persecute me and turning the other cheek with killing someone else to preserve my own life. I can't see Jesus doing that. Now, trust me, I'm jacked up in a whole lot of other ways. I mean, I struggle with selflessness in other real-world areas. Let's just face it. I've never been in danger. I, I doubt that I'm ever actually placed in danger. It's real easy for me to go through an intellectual and theological exercise about concealed carry because, frankly, probably nothing statistically is ever going to happen to me like that. But I've been in vocational ministry for 36 years, and I have at times been fairly criticized, and then there have been other times where I have been unfairly maligned, and I'm great at keeping a list and refining it. You know, that's not portraying selflessness. It's not blessing those who persecute. It's not loving your enemy. 
So I'm, I'm still working. I've not got this whipped. I just used that example to show how sometimes we just pretty blindly say, well, sure, and don't stop to consider that decision in light of what we see in Scripture. I am not trying to preach what is a matter of conscience to me as a law on you. I'm just simply saying that we all need to really think through if we really value others' needs more than I own, more than our own, because genuine love promotes selflessness. And finally, genuine love promotes peace. And again, as with selflessness, it's a peace with absolutely no boundaries. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. On the personal level, Paul is saying genuine love for Jesus promotes peace in our lives in the face of life's trials and life's difficulties. Peace in the life of a Jesus follower isn't an act of denial that they are in pain or that the world is in conflict. It is born as an act of faith that Jesus is returning. That's what hope means in verse 12, the hope of Christ's return. It, it, it means acknowledging that God being God, there is a purpose for my present troubles, and it shows us that prayer is the means to me being more deeply rooted in the idea that Jesus is coming again and that all of this will be undone. Genuine love for Jesus, Paul is saying in verse 12, does not lead to worry or hysteria. It leads to peace. But then this, look at verse 17, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the only thing that probably needs any kind of explaining at all there is the package of verses that come at the end about the, the coals and all of that. Paul is using an Old Testament passage there to illustrate that the refusal to meet evil with evil, our refusal to avenge ourselves, is born of a peace that God is our defender, and that it will have the effect of heaping a repentant, burning shame on the one who is persecuting us. That's almost never how that's taught. I mean, how that's taught is, if you really want to get back at somebody, be nice to them. It'll kill them, and it'll be great. That's, that's how that's almost always taught. That's not what it means. What it means is by refusing to defend yourself, it burns into someone's mind a distinct difference that may indeed be part of what Jesus uses to bring them to repentance and join your hearts as brother or sister in Christ and be reconciled to them. That's what peace does. If I don't have to worry 
about how I'm going to get back at someone. If I am set free from the need to defend myself, I can live securely in the peace that God's got it, and I am released to act in ways that may actually bring someone who's trying to harm me to repentance. Now, Paul acknowledges in these verses it's not possible to live at peace with everyone. I mean, we know that. But he says that should be our goal. It should be our goal. Is that your goal? To live in peace with everyone? Is that my goal? Does our social media presence indicate that we're trying to live at peace with everyone or that we're only trying to gain the applause of people who already agree with us? But you say, I have the right to share my opinions. We'll see point two of our message today. Genuine love promotes selflessness. But you say, well, such and such topic or such and such person makes me so angry. See point one. Genuine love promotes holiness, and anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. I hope our verses today have helped us all see how in this world, how warped the understanding of genuine Christian love has become. It is not the sappy sentimentality of the theological left, and it is not the love my own and everyone else is my enemy attitude of the theological right. It looks like Jesus is what it does, who called people to holiness while modeling it himself, who put the needs of others ahead of his own to the point of laying down his life, and when his life was threatened, didn't wonder to himself, man, I wish I had my sword with me, but instead could accept that persecution knowing that God was his ultimate defender. The same Jesus who said over and over again that modeling the kind of love he demonstrated was the mark of actually knowing him in the first place. Let's pray together.